Hi, everybody. This is Tracy Malone. I've got a really important topic to discuss today, the psychological evaluation and how it's used in divorce, specifically with a narcissist. Now, anyone who's not divorcing a narcissist and happens to listen to this, much of it will apply. But the psychological evaluation is often used by narcissists as a weapon in divorce. We know why they're doing this, right? They're deflection. It's not them, it's you. It's projection, right? Um, it also builds the lie foundation for smearing later. You're the crazy one. They've got proof. Look, she had a, a psych eval, you know? It's, it's just building up their arsenal of things that they can use against you later. It also makes the narcissist the victim. Right. If if they get a psych eval, they can go around and tell everybody that it's your fault. You're so crazy. You had to have a psych eval and you're not a good parent because you had to have a psych eval. And no matter what happens on it, it's irrelevant. They've already planted the seeds that something is not right. So. They also use this to reduce your parenting time. If they can prove by having a psych eval that there's something wrong with you and you shouldn't get as much parenting time, that's one of their goals with this. You know, if you don't have psychological conditions, it's not going to matter much, but they still throw it out there. It's just the hook to get people to cast light on your sanity. Right? And there's two camps here. So we're going to talk about um, you requesting it on someone who you suspect with narcissist personality disorder or the narcissist ordering it on you. And when they do that, it hurts so much because you've endured the crazy for so long and now you're being called crazy in the courtroom. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but that's what narcissists do, right? Most of my clients experience either wanting to get a psych eval on their narcissistic um, spouse to prove, look, let me show you court. Let me show you what I've been going through. My guest today is Susan Guthrie, and we're going to talk about what the value of a psych value is in the in the divorce process. Can it hurt you? Um, can it help you? Does anyone listen? We know that the judges and the lawyers and nobody really cares if you've been emotionally abused. What about the psych eval? Does that change the playing field? How do we use it? How do we protect ourselves from it? We're going to get to all that in one minute with Susan Guthrie. My name is Tracy Malone. I am the founder of NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. If you are looking for help and resources, I've got thousands of them on my websites, from free legal aid in every state to free support groups in every state. We've got all kinds of information that's going to help you, as well as information if you want to work one-on-one -on -one with me. I coach people from all over the world, and I'm here to help you if you are struggling, whether it's through a divorce, through a parent, or some other situation, or maybe you're helping a friend, right? Let's start off with go and meeting Susan Guthrie and talking about the value of a psychological evaluation in divorce. Welcome, Susan. I'm so excited that you're here. Oh, I'm so glad as always to join you, Tracy. This is such an important topic. As you well know, when people are divorcing a narcissist, um, the psych eval comes into question. So having a psychological evaluation on someone that you suspect is a narcissist um, or them turning around and ordering it on you to deflect and project that it's not them, it's you. How does a psych eval work in the divorce process? The, the court system, does it matter? What do we need to know? Yeah. Oh gosh. It's, and this is a deep dive topic. So we'll have a lot to talk about, but 
you know, at, at the very top, I, I want to point out psych evaluations are rare, right? They are not done in the vast majority of cases. They are something that is, I would call, not extraordinary, but definitely out of the ordinary. Most people are presumed to be functioning at a, a psychological level that they do not need to have evidence of their fitness, their psychological fitness brought into the courtroom as part of the evidence. And, and keep in mind, that's what a psych eval is for. It's to show that someone has a psychological issue or struggle that in some way impacts a legal issue. In most cases, that would be a custodial issue, something around you know safety around the children, fitness to raise the children. So that's how it comes up most often. And it depends on your state where you are as to how this would come about, right? Each state has sort of a different uh, triggering process that would bring this custody or this psychological evaluation into play. Um, but it wouldn't happen in your normal case. It's going to happen because somebody sets in motion a request for this to happen. And are they providing evidence? You know, because again, I'm going on my clients that come in and go, here's 48 pages of the crazy stuff I've dealt with. Won't the court care? So if that 48 pages of crazy stuff that I've dealt with came from you, the, the, the client, the person going through the divorce, the only way to really get that information before the court is through testimony. And, you know, there are rules of evidence. You don't just get to go in and read off your 48 pages of crazy. Um, there are limits to what how you're allowed to put things in. So there, that's one issue. What people want to see translated into the psych evaluation is they want their 48 pages of their experience of crazy to then be reflected in the psych evaluation. And that can be a big leap, right? Now you're talking about your personal experience, and I am in no way saying your personal experience is not valid and true. But what you are wanting to see happen or what most people think is going to happen in a psych eval, if it's their spouse being evaluated, is that those 48 pages are going to be then validated mm -hmm. through this evaluation that a psychological professional has done. And it's going to say, yeah, your 48 pages are 100% accurate and true because your spouse is someone suffering from a personality disorder or who is bipolar or who is this or who is that. Um, and I'll be honest, that's not always the experience that happens for people when a psych eval is done. Um, it doesn't always come out exactly the way that you think it's going to come out. In fact, it, most often it does not. I, I knew there was a backfire in most of these cases. And I was like, well, I'm waiting for her to say that because. Yeah, the yeah, but, right. I always call it the yeah, but. It's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, but. <laughs> so what's the but? So but how can it really backfire on people? It Well, in a variety of ways. And I've seen all of these. And, and so, you know, some may happen, some may not happen. But at the very top level, most often I would say, the evaluator 
does not see your ex 100% the way you see them. Mm -hmm. And so that your many pages or your interpretation of incidents or your experience does not end up being 100% validated through the psych evaluation. Um, so, and that can happen for a variety of reasons. Um, remember that your 48 pages are your interpretation of events. So they are completely usually one-sided. Mm -hmm. Whereas the evaluator is usually going to at least have two sides. Mm -hmm. They're, they're often going to have some input from you, but they're also going to be speaking to the person who's being evaluated and sometimes other people. So it may be that they are having input from a variety of different sources. So that can be one aspect is where they, they see balance or they see more balance out there than maybe you see or feel. So that brings more balance to their report. The other thing is, and you know this, Tracy, people with um, certain personality disorders, and I'll hone in on your favorite, the narcissists, they're pretty good at hiding their crazy. And, and that is not a psychological diagnosis, everybody. So I'm not a psychologist. I shouldn't call it crazy. They are very skilled at hiding their dysfunction. They've been doing it for years. And they're good at it. Um, and so, yes, psychological professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, they have training, but there's still a relatively limited scope that they get to see um, in these evaluations. Your typical evaluation, I would say, takes, you know, I'm going to roughly guesstimate it at about six months, oh. um, three to six months depending, and, and there's permutations to that, but it's not like every single day for six months, they're having contact with your ex and doing that evaluation. They may have two or three meetings with, with that person. They're going to be looking at other reports. They're going to be looking at the pleadings. They're going to be looking at information that you've provided perhaps than others. But what takes so long is really that they, this is not the only evaluation they're doing. This is not the only thing on their plate. And it takes time to pull together those, what also can, by the way, be 48 page reports. Um, it's not uncommon for a psych eval to be, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 pages long in some instances. They may do psychological testing. Most often they will um, do psychological testing. And so those, those reports will be in there. Um, and often they're not just doing a psych eval of just one person in the paradigm. You know, most often when a psych evaluation is requested of one person, the, that person's going to say, fine, I want you tested too. Mm -hmm. And if there are children involved and it's being alleged by one or both that the children are being affected by whatever the proposed problem is or, or considered problem is, they're going to want the children tested and evaluated as well. So now you're talking about a very comprehensive family psychological evaluation. Mm -hmm. Takes longer, costs more money, and brings even more information into it that will come out in the final report. That is so much more intense than I ever imagined. So thank you for sharing that it could take that long and, and be that intense. Um, I have seen, as you just said, 
that you're requesting a psych eval, but they turn it around and also get you psych eval, right? And oh, for sure. And we're reporting they're crazy. And I use that term, you know, in a friendly way. But when we are reporting these things on our 48 pages of this is what happened, and then this, you know, all of that sort of stuff, victims tend to look a little bit un un unstable, right? Because it's yeah. so horrific that you're having to experience this and you're just like you're not going to believe it and you're, you're just hyper vigilant and you're like ah you know and so that also sheds a light that can look like if they're claiming it's you and you're claiming it's them but they're all calm and collected with the evaluators and they know how to hide their their behaviors they're not going to show it I mean we probably didn't see it for a long time either so they have the skills to just lock that stuff away and present themselves so respectable right and yes. you've got this 48 page document and you're like how they do this? How they do this? and you've got that that not tone but this this like oh my god kind of appearance that you can seem unbalanced and it can backfire and the the narc is already claiming it so who's going to look better the one who's calm and you know very put together or the one that is hyper vigilant and oh my god you know and, and they're in trauma they're in ptsd so we're not looking at ptsd we're evaluating them for something that now gets put onto their plate and, and it gets really complicated for people. It, it does. And I am so glad you said that. It was funny as you were saying it, it was what was going on in my head because this doesn't happen just in the psych evaluation. It happens in court all the time. Um, and it's why so often when people go to court and are divorcing a narcissist or someone with a personality disorder or other psychological issue, very often they do not get the result that they want in the courtroom. And that is because, and I've, I've been there and I've seen this happen where the person who is the victim of abuse comes across as all these things that you just talked about. They are almost frantic to make sure people understand what has happened here. And because they are at that level of just, you know, all the things you said, hypervigilance and PTSD and trauma and stress, they, they speak very quickly. They cry. They're very dramatic. They, you know, are very, um, uh, you know, the phrasing they use is very, you know, over the top because they're really trying to be descriptive. And then over at the other council table, you have, you know, I'll be, be generic and say, Mr. Calm, Cool and Collected, who's just like, yeah, this is what I deal with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You see what, you see what it's like. And that same dynamic can carry over into the psych evaluation. And, you know, so in some cases, it's it, probably the phrase victims are their own worst enemies is not the right way to say it. But one of the things, and this is something I say to anyone who is a victim of, of any type of abuse who needs to in any way talk about that with anyone in the legal process, this is why you have to have a coach, because you need to be prepped for those conversations. You need to have distilled down the essential information that you need to convey. And you need to go through that and be prepared to present it in a calm, cool, and collected way so that your point can come across. And you honestly, folks can't do it yourself because you don't know 
just where you're at on that trauma level. And you need someone to help you and say, you know what, you've got 48 pages of content here. You're probably going to be able to highlight, talk in broad terms, but then highlight 10 incidents. Let's go through and pick the 10 that you want to focus on. And instead of, you know, there's the time he slammed the door in my face and the da, 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 da. maybe you want to go with the one where, you know, he took the kids out of school without notifying you and disappeared for two days. Maybe that one is a little bit more descriptive of what you've got, right? So that preparation for any of these things so that you don't have that affect of being the person who has the trouble controlling their emotions um, is is truly critically important because if you're whether you're in the evaluation process you're, or you're in the courtroom, you are both. This is the other thing people forget. At all times in the litigation process, you are both under the microscope, both of you, all the time. Everybody is looking over your shoulder. Everyone is making judgments. And that is the that's another downside of litigation, right? You've got these strangers who don't know you and don't really know what you've been through. They are making judgments and they are making them about you just as much as they're making them about the other person. And that's exactly how it can backfire. I've done a lot of like GAL prep and, you know, looking at GAL reports and recently came across one that, you know, I, I'm highlighting as I'm reading it and I'm like, Okay, wife calls husband psychopath. Page two, wife calls him an alcoholic. Wife calls him a, a sociopath, a narcissist. All this language. And all you see about what she says about him is how cool and calm and collected he is, right? The evidence yeah. is showing. And I know that what they're doing is, is harmful, but it's about what parts are we going to bring to this level? What parts do we need? As you just said, it's not the whole 48 pages. It is... This shows this, and this is what the judge cares about. And the, you know, I'm not saying the slamming of the door doesn't matter, but if you've got hotter issues, things that are much more important that will move the needle to showing whether it's a bad parent or that they are abusive to you, those things are going to matter much more than some of the other, you know, I'm not saying lesser things. You got to prioritize. You got right? to pick. You got to pick. You got to pick and choose. And, and you're and making a really important point here that I don't want people to miss. Mm -hmm. about that GAL report, because this is oh so common. Many, many victims come in diagnosing their abuser. And that is the biggest mistake that you can make. You are not the psychological professional. And even if you are, do not diagnose your ex. Do not go in there and, and throw out labels. They don't matter coming from you and they are not helpful to you. Focus on the behaviors. That is it. Never say he's a narcissist. He's bipolar. He's this. It, it is not helpful to you. And in fact, as you just pointed out, it's harmful to you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is all about the door slamming or the taking the children out of school without notifying you and then not responding to communication asking where the children were for four days or, you know, it's the behaviors. And I cannot say that enough because it honestly, you, you know, one thing that you and I've talked about in other shows is judges 
don't really care about the labels. They care about the behaviors and the effect that they have on the, if we're talking about, you know, the best interests of the children on those children. And so the fact that your ex is a narcissist isn't enough for a judge to say, well, they're a danger to the child. The fact that you're, they have done things that have put the children into dangerous positions, that is what a judge gets to say, there, there's what I can hang my robe on and bang my gavel on and make an order that, that puts up guardrails around these behaviors. And that is a huge difference for people to understand. You're not going to see a court order that says the court finds that the defendant is a narcissist and therefore can have no contact with their children. That's not what a court order is going to look like. No, I mean, I've had clients and friends that their spouses threw them down the stairs. They were arrested three times and they still get the children half the time. Right. I mean, if that's a fine line and, you know, calling and having someone even diagnosed as a narcissist, what's the gain if they if they go, OK, we've done this psych eval. It took six months. You just paid twenty thousand dollars for it. OK, we've got a rubber stamp. Oh, that's right. Tracy has a rubber stamp. Right. We have a rubber stamp that says narcissist. OK, so of she does. I have I have two toys. But um, but if 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 they do get the stamp sociopath, borderline, bipolar, does it matter? Like, again, we're going through all this length to prove it. And, and I think that's always the wrong direction because it, it it comes from those behaviors. It comes from this is what happened. And it's not, you know, I get a lot of parents that we have and I'm, I'm not biased against men here but it's Disneyland dad they took them to Europe for three weeks and you know spoiled them and I can't give them that and and that's not an offense no judge is gonna say well that's manipulative right I mean it's like would you like him not to be nice to your children right so right. Things that we must pick and choose that are you know they they hold the child down the stairs by their hair that will matter right but you can also get in trouble with that well if they pulled the child down the stairs by their hair why didn't you call the police right so all of these things also come back to haunt you where you should have done something you're a bad parent as equal as them and and that's what we need people to understand that they have accountability in say reporting that that happened or reporting that the child picked up drugs off their husband's floor and ate them and you didn't report it you can get in trouble with child protective services and all kinds of other agencies and so it's really that that's why it is so imperative that your lawyer understands this as well as your coach if you've got one that can direct you to okay i know it hurt that they went off to disneyland but um this is something that we can't, you know, again, it's manipulative to you, but it's not to the children. It's not putting them in danger and in harm. So what happens if they get diagnosed with one of these things? You know, it does give the, I mean, with certain personality disorders, certainly depend what you will see in the psych evaluation may be, you know, the, 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 the person doing the report um, suge suggest that somebody has a personality disorder or something like that. What will be much more compelling to a judge, though, will be the degree, because we all know, like, a, a narcissist, just like any human being, is not one thing. A narcissist is not one thing. Um, antisocial personality disorder, that tends to run. Sociopath, psychopath, even, 
okay, those run to scary levels. Uh, but when someone is diagnosed as a narcissist, it would be more the language that then says, and has exhibited behaviors in the past that seriously put into question his or her ability to provide a safe environment for the children when they are solely within his or her care, something like that. There's my lawyer talk, right? Or my psych talk. But it, it would be something that certainly if there's a diagnosis, and it's rare that you can find a flat out diagnosis in there because they haven't really had the time to do a full on, you know, deep dive into it, but they will make recommendations. And I really think in the recommendations, that's where judges tend to, to be much more interested. And the recommendations are based on findings. I do find that the defendant exhibits certain narcissistic behaviors or that certain behaviors common to people with narcissistic personality disorder, um, and those have manifested themselves in the following ways which have caused harm to the children. And that way, this person po poses a potential harm to that, the children, and therefore, my recommendations for custody would be blah, 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 blah. That's where, you know, that's where it matters. Um, and it wouldn't be necessarily the diagnosis. It's the full flow of that information. The diagnosis, again, is rarely, I think people want it because they feel in some way vindicated. And, and uh, you know, I don't have the rubber stamp for this one, but they also get that that victim stamp on their forehead as well, which has its pluses and its minuses, folks. You know, yes. You do need to be acknowledged as, as a victim of abuse. That is important. But I love your sign right behind you to be a survivor. There's a huge difference between being a victim and a survivor um, and survivor. And um, all that you're going to get from someone diagnosing your ex as a narcissist or whatever it might be is maybe that confirmation. Um, but again, it, it, it's the behaviors. There are narcissists, I'll say this to you right now, there, there are probably narcissists out there in the world who are diagnosed narcissists who have parenting time with their children because they manage their personality disorder. There are things that can be done or they're at a level on that scale where they're not a harm to their children. Um, and that is, that is hard sometimes for people to understand that, that level of granular detail in this. Um, there, whether there are harm to you, you mentioned, um, you know, somebody throwing the mother down the stairs, not having thrown the children down the stairs. Well, hopefully there's a growing understanding that spousal abuse, um, intimate partner violence is also child abuse um, within the home. And certainly if it's perpetrated in front of the children, it is a form of child abuse and does form harm to the children. But if it's happening completely outside of the understanding of the children and the children have never been placed in any sort of harm, you're going to have a hard time with a court, barring that person from having contact with those children. Absolutely. And, and I know that a lot of people end up like even wishing that there'd be supervised visits, right? And I, I, I believe that there is a time and a place for supervised visits. If, if mm -hmm. the children are at risk, absolutely. We've got to get them protected, right? And they're monitored and, you know, like every moment is documented, but it's also traumatic for the kids, you know, so it, it comes with a, a, a great cost of having something like that. So it, it does have to be severely 
you know, this is the danger, this is the risk, leaving the kid in the car and forgetting and going into work would be a, we can't trust that parent or, you know, they've made a real bad mistake, we have to watch them from this point. Um, but it does tie into sort of what people are hoping to get. And that's what I want to just talk to you for a second is, you know, if you're doing this to either get validation or, you know, um, you know, get them, everyone will know you've been abused and, and, and not hold the victim card, but know that you're not crazy that this really happened. But also the risk is what do we do if we, we are looking for supervised visits just to hurt them and, and, you know, that's where it hurts the children and even asking for that. I would imagine that the judge would see through that and say, you know what, we don't have any reason. They, they didn't throw the kids down the stairs. They didn't do this. And and what's the risk involved in the children having to go and have some other person sit while, you know, two feet away from them while they visit with the parent? So there's a risk in that factor. So they really have to know what it is that they hope to get from this, because it doesn't seem so far as we've been talking that there's any real gain other than something's on paper and maybe they'll get a little bit less time. Yeah, such a good point. And I, I am so happy you made this because this is the part that people forget. They get mired in the diagnosis part of this and forget that, well, on the other side of the diagnosis, say you get it, what is it that you want to happen or be recommended by the evaluator because that's the key part their findings and evaluations and recommendations and what is it that you want on the other side of it and and your point about supervised visitation is really for being a traumatic experience for children children know what's on they understand that what is being said with that is that their other parent is not safe Mm -hmm. And that for children can be incredibly traumatizing if that's not been their experience of that parent, mm -hmm. right? So you, if you've created a narrative of abuse that maybe is not at that level, but the judge has agreed with you, you've now put your children in a place where they've now had their, their safety and their, their sense of safety sort of eroded and taken out from under them because now they've been told someone they thought was that loved them and was safe for them is not. Um, and, you know, supervised visitation is not a permanent thing. It is hardly ever something that's going to last for the rest of your children's minority. Mm -hmm. um, it is looked at as something that is a step up, right? We're going to put this in for safety's sake, we're going to have this supervised visitation for a time period, but almost always there's some sort of like, and when this person is able to provide safe safety for the children, we're going to move into an, a new schedule. And that's done in a variety of different ways. And usually that's part of the recommendation. The evaluator and a psych, if they find that some parent is you know, somewhat needing of support and assistance, they're going to make recommendations for what that support and assistance should look like. I think they should go to therapy twice a week. I think they need to attend anger management. I think they need to meet with a psychiatrist once a month to see if medication's indicated. I think it needs to go for six months under supervised. To, and if there have been no incidents, we talk about expanding, but that's the grant, that's the level of what's going to be recommended. But you don't control that. You, the person asking for the psych evaluation, don't control what the evaluator finds mm -hmm. or recommends. And again, 
more often than not, you're not going to like everything that they recommend. I don't see too often, and I've done this for a really long time, I've not seen too many slam dunk psych evals where it came back and it basically said this person should not have contact with their children ever. I think actually I've seen that once. Wow. That's, that's really helpful for people to know, because again, what are their expectations? If they think, okay, we'll get this taken care of and then ha ha, they won't get any children time, but there are times for supervised visits, you know, drug problems, alcohol oh, yeah. problems, things that put the children at risk. And, you know, every single parenting plan that I have ever seen where there's been that drug or alcohol. So they get drug tested, they get this, they pass this link. Yeah. When they've done this, then we can move to this. And then they can maybe walk the children to school, but not in the car. And they've got to always have the breathalyzer and they've got, you know, all of these kind of things do have a place in the court system to protect the children. Um, but just the narcissist label it's a very hard journey. And I really am so grateful that you're here to explain this to us because everybody asks and um, I wanted your professional opinion here. Is there anything else that we missed that people really need to know about this? The only other thing I would add, because this has been a, a tough pill to swallow for clients over the years as well, and a surprise is especially expect if you ask for a psych eval, we've already said this, they're going to ask for an evaluation of you. Um, and usually a court's going to go with that, right? They don't know what's going on here. So they're going to say, that's parity, that's equitable. Let's get them both evaluated. We all have our issues, right? Not any one of us is out there is 100% perfect. And so it can be very difficult to read a psych eval of yourself mm -hmm. and get a psychiatrist or psychologist professional insights into our behaviors when we have been going through a traumatic, difficult time and probably at times have not put our best foot forward. Mm -hmm. And so what will surprise people often is when it is a bilateral evaluation, we often don't come across as well as we think we will either. And that's, you know, we're human and that's going to happen. But it goes back to what you and I talked about at the top here was that you know, this is an extremely stressful process and time, and we have to remember that that at times we have not been our best and behaved our best, and our own behaviors will come under that microscope. So I, I always warn clients about that because I've had people have orders entered against them um, as a result of psych evals uh, that they have to go for therapy or they have to go. And, and I know people out there are saying, fine, of course, who wouldn't want to go? There's a big difference between you deciding for yourself that you want therapy mm -hmm. and it being in a court order and a psychological evaluation from a professional that you need therapy. There's just a difference. And so I just, I'm not in any way saying don't get them done. I'm saying this is expectation setting for everyone. It is not a simple uh, matter to go get psychological evaluations and rarely do they come out 100% the way you want them to or the way you think that they will. It's the same thing as when you think you're gonna go in front of a judge and tell the judge your story and the judge is gonna go, oh, 100%, 100%, hardly ever happens. Same thing in a psych evaluation. 
And aren't they costly? Like if you're talking about a six month eval, you're talking 10,000. How much are you talking? Minimum 10. Um, the more people being evaluated, the more expensive they get. 10 to 20 can be for one person. Um, I've seen full family psych evals go up to 50 thousand uh, dollars depending on how many people need to be talked to in the complexity and sometimes you need more than one professional collaborating on the psych eval um, you've mentioned substance and uh, substance use disorder issues etc we may have a psychologist a psychiatrist and a substance use um, disorder therapist working together on a comprehensive analysis in that particular case because that's multiple levels of complication and 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 that cost gets split or does the oh no it just adds <laughs> it just adds okay um because they're all going to be coming in doing their own evaluation process right like the psychologist may be doing the personality um testing and all that the psychologist or psychiatrist might be doing um you know evaluations for psychiatric disorders um, and medication and then your substance use um, counselor or therapist is going to be doing substance use disorder sort of analysis and then they may either come together or issue three separate reports wow it's actually better when they work together because then you get a comprehensive understanding and recommendations that's good to know too well yeah. thank you so much susan this has been such a, a gift to share your knowledge and thank you and thank the world for you know being here to listen to you because um it's it's really popular in my in my arena of divorcing narcissists and this clears up a lot of questions so a lot of people are going to watch this and get educated so thank you so much well, I hope it helps that during what I know for everyone is a really difficult time. And thank goodness for the, for you and the work that you do to support people at this time, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you found that helpful. Susan is such a wealth of information and the psych eval plays an important role with all of my clients who are dealing with narcissists. So I hope this helps you understand the risks, the benefits, and, you know, what what the process looks like. And if you are considering this, I want you to go to your lawyer and talk about what the side effects would be. What could be the consequences? If we do this, what would be the gain if we do this? Like we just talked about and really evaluate the need for this. And I'm not saying it's not a helpful tool, but if it's, you know, if you know exactly what you're looking to get out of it and um, it doesn't reverse back onto you, then you've got something to stand on. But the cost is high and the risk is higher. So this is Tracy Malone. I hope this helps you. I am a divorce coach and I help people get that report done. Figure out what to say to the the um, courts when you're going there. How to, to, to tweak that story so that you don't come off going my a narcissist, a sociopath, an alcoholic, a this or that, right? You're not throwing those things out while they sit there and they're all calm. We need to get the information based on the events. We need to pull the most important ones that the judge is going to care about. And we build a story around each one of them, even court prep to say, hey, when they ask you this, this is you know what you're going to say. That makes you come off as a more respectable and more calm person when you're in the court 
and it can't get reversed back on you. So this is Tracy Malone. Visit my website, NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. We've got that right up there. And um, if you haven't liked or followed me yet, go ahead. And if you are listening to this on a podcast, I'm also on YouTube and you can find me pretty much anywhere like Instagram, Pinterest, you know, the regular spots. So thank you again for joining us. And I hope this was a benefit. I know I learned a lot and it's always good to have a lawyer in the room giving us advice. So have a great day.